Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 to 35. I'm going to fix this stand real quick, because it's going to drive me nuts if I don't. There, that's better. Matthew 24, 15 to 35 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew, 15, Matthew 24, 15 to 35. I want to take you back in time. The year is about 550 B.C. That is, before Christ. There's a man by the name of Daniel, and he is having a dream in a foreign country in Babylon. He's a Jew by birth, and he has risen through the ranks of the nation of Babylon to become a ruler over many of the Babylonian provinces. Some years prior, while he was still a young boy, he and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, better known by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or perhaps you may know them by their English names, Yorshak, Meshach, and a bungalow. <laughs> The old jokes are the best. You know. uh, they, Daniel and his three friends, we'll call them, uh, were all kidnapped in their native country of Israel and were hauled off to Babylon to be prisoners of the evil empire of Babylon. And as one thing led to another... Uh, due to God's blessing upon these four young men and through various circumstances. One, for Daniel, giving him the ability to interpret dreams, not just any dream, but the dream of the most powerful man in the land, Nebuchadnezzar. And these other three boys, through various means, rose through the ranks of Babylon to become officials. But time has passed. And here we find ourselves in about 550 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. One of his successors, a man by the name of Belshazzar, is now on the throne. But there's trouble afoot because east of Babylon, there is an empire, a Persian empire, led by, the, by the, uh, a man by the name of Cyrus, and he's just finished a military campaign where he's led his Persian empire into Medea to conquer the Medes. Now, you may have heard of Cyrus. A decade later, he would march into Babylon, and he would conquer Babylon, and he would set the Jews free to return back to their homeland. Now, Daniel will personally see and experience King after king and empire after empire be overturned, overthrown, each empire conquered by one who is more fierce and more strong than they were. Now, going as far back as the creation of man, 
we find out in Genesis 1 that God, that God made man in his own image. And we're told in that same chapter that being made in his image means that we're given dominion over the earth. So Adam and Eve were given dominion to rule in God's stead, to execute his rule and his reign over the earth. But what we see happen in Genesis 3 is that man and woman are dominated by a beast of the field. The most clever and cunning beast of the field. A serpent, in fact. They're dominated by this serpent. And ever since then, we have inherited a sinful state from our forefather, Adam. And with that sinful state was transferred to us this idea of dominion that God had originally given us that is a perversion of what he set us out to do, no longer to execute the rule and reign of God around the earth, but instead execute a beastly rule and reign over the earth. So ever since that day, kingdoms have risen and they have fallen each conquered by beasts that were stronger and nastier than the ones before, attempting to rule the world in their image rather than the image of God. So, on this night, God gives Daniel a dream. And in this dream, he sees very much this idea of beast after beast conquering each other. This pattern of one beast being particularly gnarly rises up only to be conquered by a beast more gnarly than the one before, ruling in his own image and then being conquered by the next one that's fierce and terrible and again ruling in his own image. And then we get to a fourth beast that is particularly terrible, awful in fact, more fierce than all the ones that came before, and he comes in and lays waste to all the other beasts. But then something happens. In his dream, he's taken to a throne room. And in the throne room, there are many thrones, occupied by many beasts. But there is one throne left unoccupied. Who does this throne belong to? Well, all of a sudden enters into the room in Daniel's dream one that is called the Ancient of Days. God the Father enters into the room. As he enters, everyone goes silent except this fourth beast who keeps jabbering on like he should be talking. And so immediately the Ancient of Days slaughters him and delivers his body to the fire to be burned. And then he takes his seat on his throne. Meaning, he's not threatened by any of these beasts. Then, he takes away all of their authority, represented as crowns on their head. He removes their authority. And then this happens. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So in the middle of all of this, not only is the dominion taken away from those beastly authorities, the kind of dominion that was originally intended for mankind is taken away from them and given to one like a son of man. One who comes bearing the image of God. A new Adam, you might say. He comes in riding on the clouds of heaven. And where does he go? He goes straight to the Ancient of Days, where God the Father crowns him with all the dominion of all the beasts that have come before him to give it to him, to put the crown on on his head following the dominion being given to this new and better Adam, it says that no other beast will ever take the dominion back. In fact, you might say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, never to be taken away. So with that as the background, let's read our text this morning as Jesus further talks about the collapse of the city of Jerusalem in Matthew 24, 15 to 35. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation. There will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise And perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, These passages are difficult, challenging. 
there's probably going to be disagreement in amongst this room how we understand this, how we interpret this. And I pray, Father, that not for uniformity, everyone be of the same opinion, but unity, all settled on Christ as the only hope of our salvation. I pray that we would be creatures of the word, students of this Bible that is in front of us, where we have the record of the very words that you've given to us, words that are profitable for training and righteousness. May we not use them as weapons to bludgeon our opponents, but rather as words uttered from your mouth through the hands of your prophets and scribes given to us that we may be edified, that we may grow in holiness. We need your spirit to open our ears, our eyes, and our hearts that we may hear, see, and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing I want us to look at in this passage, starting in verse 15, going all the way to verse 28, is the judgment against Jerusalem that is coming. There's a lot of hurdles in this passage, obviously, as you can read. Very contentious to some. There's so many hurdles that by the time we get through this sermon, I might qualify for the Olympics. I'm not sure. <laughs> At least it made the kids laugh, you know. Many of you are probably thinking, uh, there's no way he'll be fast enough to qualify for the Olympics. And that's probably true. Um, there's a danger here when we go through a passage like this, we could cover it quickly, and we, that would require us fly at kind of a 30,000-foot level over the passage and not really uh, answer tons of questions or anything like that, but just sort of take a, a general approach to the passage. And there's some merit to that, but I think that wouldn't really answer a lot of the big questions that would still remain in this passage. And even going through it in one sermon still is not going to answer a lot of the big questions that will no doubt have popped up in your mind by the time we get to the end. But I want to reiterate a very big claim that I made last week that I'm still doubling down on this week in spite of what we just read. In Matthew 24, from verses 4 all the way to verses 35, all of that, from 4 all the way to 35, where Jesus is speaking to the disciples, all of that, I think, concerns the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., with the exception of one little verse when he talks about the lightning in the sky. That's about it, but everything else refers to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. So, what that means is, for you and me sitting here at Emmanuel Baptist Church on the 18th of April, 2021, all of these events that we have read about from verse 4 all the way up until verse 35 are all events that have already taken place in 70 A.D., Jesus is prophesying about these events, and he's looking 40 years into his future and into the disciples' future, where they will see the collapse of the temple. All of these things, he reiterates several times, are going to happen in your lifetime. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. He said this three or four times by the time he gets to the end. 
And all of this is in answer to a question, or to two questions, that his disciples asked him as far back as verse 3. If you remember, it says, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Those are marked out on the verse behind me in different colors, the two questions that they really ask him. When will these things be refers to what they were just talking about, which is the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. They don't know it's in 70 A.D. He does. Now, claiming that verses 4 to 35 have already happened is particularly challenging because we get to verse 15, and we see that he calls out there this infamous, now, abomination of desolation. What does that mean? The abomination of desolation seems like, and I was taught even as a little boy, this is something that we're looking forward to at the very end, that it's still in my future, this abomination of desolation. What does it mean then to have desolation? What is that? Well, desolation carries two senses to it. One, desolation is an area that is uninhabitable. Somewhere where nobody wants to be. And then it also carries with it the sense of destruction. Now when it comes to the temple, both things are actually going to happen. It's going to be an area where no one wants to be, and it is ultimately going to be destroyed. Now keep in mind, Jesus has told the Pharisees back in chapter 23, verse 38. Just look up 23, 38. He says, See your house is left to you, what is the word? Desolate. And we said back then, or I said back then, that the glory of God, the physical embodiment of the glory of God, just like in the days of Ezekiel, when he was sitting on the banks of the river in the midst of Babylon, just like he sees the vision of the glory of God leaving the temple, Jesus says, your house is going to be left to you desolate because the physical embodiment of the glory of God, namely Jesus Christ, is picking up and he is leaving the temple. And just a few verses later, in 24-1, Jesus leaves the temple. Their house is left to them desolate. There is no more glory of God. God is leaving the temple and he's effectively making it a ghost town. That is not a desirable place to be. A place where God is not. Do you know this? Particularly if you have claimed that this temple is where you worship God. What is the purpose of going to a temple where the glory of God has disappeared? What has no purpose anymore? It is, you might say, desolate. But then something worse is going to happen. It's going to be even more desolate. Something Jesus refers to here as an abomination which is going to take place inside the temple. It's an abomination that brings about further desolation. Not only is the glory of God gone, but something else is tragic is going to take place there. Something that makes it even more undesirable for worship. In 70 AD, Titus, the general of the Roman army, is going to lead his army into the city of Jerusalem while it's still on fire. And there in the temple, he is going to make pagan sacrifices to pagan deities on the altar in the temple precincts. They're going to hang up the stanchions or the, the eagle on top of the stands, the Roman eagle, all around the temple precincts. They're going to 
claim Titus as victor and there worship Zeus. It's an abomination that takes place inside the temple. The glory of God is gone. Pagan worship is now happening inside the temple. Just like our minds are taken back to Ezekiel 10 when it happened to Ezekiel, when Ezekiel saw this in the temple there as well. But our mistake would be in assuming that this was the only time an abomination of this magnitude has taken place for the Jews. In fact, it happened almost 200 years before Titus. A man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes marched into the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar and sprinkled the blood of that pig all around, walking into the Holy of Holies. Jesus isn't referring to a future event that would be in our future called the abomination of desolation, like it's a wrestling pay-per-view or something. He's referring to the kind of abomination the Jews are all too familiar with. When someone would walk in, a pagan, a foreign army, would walk in and would fill the temple with pagan images and worship pagan deities inside the temple precincts. Now, if I just told you that, and I said, that's what that means, and just moved on, I wouldn't blame you if you were a little bit skeptical. Maybe, maybe not. But don't take my word for it. Take Luke's word as he quotes Jesus concerning this very same event. Keep in mind, these gospel records are often duplicated. And that's helpful for us. Because Matthew, as we've seen, writes to a Jewish audience. And sometimes we understand the references, and sometimes we have to dig a little bit to get the references. But Luke writes to a Gentile audience, and it's very helpful sometimes to read Luke's gospel, because we as Gentiles hear like Gentiles. And sometimes we can understand Luke, whereas it's hard to understand Matthew. So Luke takes the same words that Jesus utters, and he alters them a little bit so that they make more sense to his audience. And we find Jesus' words there in Luke 21, 20, when he says this, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Luke tells you plainly what Matthew is talking about, or what Matthew enumerates there as the abomination that causes desolation. Remember what the objective here is in 24 for Jesus. His objective is to warn his disciples. His objective is so that they will get out when these things take place. Remember, he tells them, it's going to happen in your lifetime. He tells them several times, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. He wants them to be aware of these things and that they will happen in their lifetime so that they aren't fooled, so that they can spare their own lives. The event of abomination in the temple, he's saying, is the final sign so that you know, as my followers, you can get out and flee to the hills. So then what do we see next? In the passage next, in verses 21 and 22, what do we see? We see full judgment rained down on the city. That was the last straw that's going to happen. And when that happens, flee to the hills. 
And it's going to be trying and it's going to be terrible, but flee to the hills. But then in verses 21 and 22, we see a kind of tribulation against the city of Jerusalem that has never been before seen and never will be again. And Jesus switches here to using hyperbole, which is sometimes hard for us to pick up on, that sense of hyperbole. And, but it sounds just like the kinds of hyperbole that are used in the Old Testament. There's three plagues that are called out like this in the book of Exodus, where he says about the Egyptians, they have never seen anything like this before, and they never will see anything like this again. Passages that come to mind are Exodus 9.18, Exodus 10.14, and 11.6. Then he says similar things to Israel in Joel 1-4 and Joel 2.2. All of those you can write down and you can go to and look at later. Similar language that's used in the Old Testament prophets. But they also tell of these kinds of things that are going to happen that have never been seen before and will never be seen again. Abominations and, and uh, judgments that are so great. This is God's way of saying that the wrath that is about to be poured out will be excruciating for the people that are caught up in it. How excruciating? 1.1 million people die in the city of Jerusalem in that invasion of Rome. Another 100,000 are hauled off into slavery. And many thousands more are paraded in front of Titus as he claims victory for Zeus. Jews paraded in front of Titus. But still not as bad as it could be. If you think that kind of fury of the wrath of God is bad, he says, wait a minute, still not as bad as it could be. Perhaps you might say it's still not as bad as it will be. As bad as it is, it's still not as bad as it could be because if it were all poured out, then the ones he refers to here as the elect those who are destined for salvation would also fall away from faith in Christ. So, he says, he cuts the days short to forestall that, to keep that from happening. But what would it mean in this situation to fall away from Christ? What would it mean to fall away from the Lord? What does that look like? Well, he tells us it would mean that those who believe in him would follow those who are proclaiming a false salvation. That's what comes along to them, right? In the midst of all the chaos, there comes a warning, and it's the heart of his warning, and it starts in verse 23. Look at it with me. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Remember, this is why Jesus is warning them. He's telling them so that they don't fall for these tricks. Because falling away is basically turning to anything or anyone, everything and everyone that is going to promise you any kind of salvation and putting your hope in that. Now you remember what kind of setting we're looking at here. The city is burning. It's on fire. People are starving and are dying. An army is about to march into Jerusalem and kill everybody. That situation is ripe for a person to rise up 
and say, I am the Christ. Follow me. I am your salvation. I am the one that's going to bring you salvation from Rome. Follow behind me and we will start an insurrection. Promising to be the Christ. Promising safety and security and for you to transfer all your hope in what the Messiah would actually bring in a kingdom. And you're thinking to yourself as Jerusalem is destroyed, hey, that's obviously defunct. Look what's happening. Can Christ really say, can Jesus really claim to be the Messiah when the whole city and the temple is on fire? When Rome is about to kill us? When pagan pagans are offering sacrifices to pagan deities inside the temple? Is Jesus really the Messiah? Someone else rising up and offering you salvation to transfer your hope from Christ onto that which should raise the question for us, what sense of security do we wait on? What senses of security do we long for that might spare our lives? It could be anything from the security that money brings. I'm afraid to turn loose. I'm afraid to give generously because I don't know if there will be enough. Money has become your salvation. Is it possible that you've put all your hope in yet another false Messiah because you believe that this life is all you have? It is interesting that what Jesus could say to his disciples is that this is going to happen one day, so what you should do is just pack up now and leave. Just, just go for the hills now. Why don't you just... Move. I hear the Mediterranean coast is beautiful this time of year. Just pack up and, and set up a residence there so that you won't even be in the city when all this takes place. No, he doesn't say that. Why? Because at Peter's preaching, thousands upon thousands of Jews in Jerusalem are going to come to know Christ. Because there's work to do. He leaves the disciples in Jerusalem telling them that they can afford some amount of risk. They don't have to be reckless. The judgment that's coming to Jerusalem is not coming against them. It's not for them. So they can afford to wait until the absolute last minute, and then they can get out. There's still thousands of his children that need to hear the gospel and be saved. As a follower of Jesus and as a believer in eternal life to come, I wonder how risky we as Americans are with our own lives. What would be the thing that would cause us to run and hide? What would be that item, that thing that might happen that would cause us to shut our mouths and stop proclaiming the gospel. You can watch news article after news article and video after video of countries around the world, the latest I know of is Canada, where the police are walking into churches and telling them that they cannot worship the risen Lord. Church, you need to decide now. 
It's too late when that happens to decide what's going to happen. You talk to anybody and you say, what would happen if somebody was threatening you with the sword? People say, well, I would like to think. I would like to think that on that day I would say yes. What do you mean you would like to think? Decide now. On that day, it will be too late. And you won't get a second chance. A guy standing outside our church with a scimitar waiting to cut off your head for worshiping the Lord, would you still do it? Would you stay at home and perhaps look for a live stream? So that no one knows that you're worshiping the Lord. He ends with this proverb, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Because see, when people are confronted with their own mortality, they, they get afraid. If they have no hope of real salvation, if they have nothing to look forward to beyond this life, they fear that someone's going to take their life away. And when that happens... Vultures gather around the dying corpse and are seeking to take advantage of it. And that's what these false Christs and these false messiahs are going to do, he says. They're going to devour the souls with false saviors, disciples. Ye be warned. This is the judgment to come upon Jerusalem. See, the crown of authority is being taken away. Jerusalem. That's what's being described here. The scene we saw in Daniel that's a very heavenly and a very spiritual scene is being described here in real and practical terms. How does God bring about the collapse of a kingdom? It's precisely this way. But then things get weird. If things weren't weird enough, things get really weird when he starts talking about the coronation of the Son of Man and what that looks like when he's crowned. Look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, not only does that sound terrifying, but it seems to be end-of-the-world kind of talk, doesn't it? Stars falling from heaven? I mean, if, if the stars fall from heaven for one person, don't they fall for all persons? Yes, they do, right? If, the, if I said to you the, the, the Big Dipper is just going to fall from heaven, it doesn't matter if you're in Russia or America, the Big Dipper has fallen, right? We all see the same Big Dipper. Some of you might be thinking, okay, I'm looking at him. Uh, but quit that. So what is he describing here? Well, it would help us if we had a deep sense of the way the Old Testament prophets speak. Because then I think if we understood the way the Old Testament prophets spoke, we would pick up a lot more of what's being said in the New Testament, particularly out of the mouth of Jesus. Because here, he is talking just like an Old Testament prophet. Like, what comes to mind is two passages in Isaiah. First, where Isaiah talks about the judgment of the nations before he hones in on Edom. He says this in Isaiah 34, 4-5. Isaiah 34, 4-5. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. 
For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon whom? Upon Edom. Upon the people I have devoted to destruction. So hey, all nations, one day you're going to collapse. Your stars are going to fall from the sky. They're going to roll up like a scroll. Specifically you, Edom, I'm coming after you, he says. Or what about Babylon in Isaiah 13, 9-10? Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land uh a desolation, we've heard that before, and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Boy, that sounds really familiar. That's judgment that's happening on Babylon, that's what he's saying. Other passages you might want to write down or consider Ezekiel 32, 7 to 8. Also verse 15 of Ezekiel 32. Ezekiel 32, 7 and 8. Also verse 15. Similar language used there. This is often how the Old Testament prophets describe the fall of an empire. They have a heavenly kind of power. They're exercising the dominion that God gave them, and how are they exercising it? In the way the beast would. They're not exercising godly dominion. They're not exercising godly rule and authority. They're exercising beastly rule and authority. So all the governments, all the nations become known as beasts, which also helps us read the book of Revelation. And the plea in the whole book of Revelation is do not worship the beast. Because guess what? It happens. I don't know if you're familiar with this, But when calamity strikes a nation, the beast says, worship me, I'll protect you. I'll give you security. You want security? You want comfort? I'll give it to you. Trust me with everything that you've got. Put all your hope in me. That's beastly dominion. And here they collapse like a dying star. So God uses that language to communicate to them, your entire world is going to be turned upside down. The stars that you depend on for navigation, the sun and the moon that you depend on for light, are all going to collapse, and you along with them. So Jesus is speaking here like an Old Testament prophet over Jerusalem, and he's telling them that their kingdom is going to collapse, their crown is going to be taken away, their world is going to be turned upside down like the pagan nations before them. And then what shall appear? Not the Son of Man. Sign of the Son of Man in the heavens. But what is he doing? Jesus says he's coming with the clouds of heaven. Does that sound familiar? Does that not sound exactly like what Daniel sees in his dream? One like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, not back to earth, to the Ancient of Days, to God the Father. What is he doing there? Presenting himself before God the Father. Now, Jesus has just jumped in his language without telling you a thing. He's jumped from Ezekiel and Isaiah all the way to Daniel, the verse we opened with at the start of this sermon. Here is the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And where is he coming? Yes, he's presenting himself before the Ancient of Days to receive the crown of authority on his head. In fact, 
The resurrection of Jesus, from the resurrection of Jesus, all the way to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, is one long coronation service for the Son of Man. It's one long coronation service for the Son of Man as His gospel proclamation begins to take root in the land, and what happens as a result? All of the kingdoms of the earth that have power and authority collapse like a dying star. Don't take my word for it, though. Take Jesus' word for it. In two chapters, he's going to be on trial in front of Caiaphas. And Caiaphas is going to ask him a very important question. It starts in 26, chapter 26, verses 63 to 65. The high priest, that is Caiaphas, said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. That means yes. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Does that sound familiar? He's quoting Daniel. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. Why does Caiaphas recognize this as blasphemy? Because he knows Daniel 7, 13, and 14, the one coming before the Lord, the one as the Son of Man, the new Adam that's going to be the Messiah. It's a messianic passage. He understands what Jesus is quoting and applying to himself there. Jesus is telling him, Caiaphas, you are going to watch me gain my crown and authority. You're going to see it take place. When does that happen? Well, for one, it is crucifixion when he purchases his people. At his resurrection, where he gains authority and is validated in his work by God, where he ascends, they're going to literally see him in the clouds of heaven, going to God the Father, to the Ancient of Days, and in the collapse of the temple that's going to happen in their lifetime. So what does Jesus do after he receives this crucifixion, this crown of authority, and this resurrection. In the Gospel of Matthew, do you remember? He appears to the disciples, and he gives to them the Great Commission. Do you remember how the Great Commission goes? You're probably thinking, go therefore. That's not how it goes. Back up. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The book of Daniel 7, 13 and 14 has been fulfilled in my resurrection. And it is being fulfilled all the way up until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So then think about with me for just a second how the Gospel of Matthew flows. Jesus tells Caiaphas in 26, I'm going to receive this crown of authority. And then he tells the disciples, now that all authority has been given to me, what are they to do? Go therefore into the nations and make disciples. So how does this prophecy of Jesus go that we're reading here when we get to verse 31? What happens now? He says, this is going to happen. The Son of Man is going to go to the God Almighty. He's going to be given this crown of authority. Now what happens as a result? He will send out his messengers. The word angels and messengers, same word. It all depends on the context. Obviously, the translator thinks what he's talking about is the second coming. The angels are going to gather the elect. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about his messengers with a loud trumpet call, gathering his elect from essentially what he amounts to, the whole earth. And he, he essentially says here, from horizon to horizon. 
from one end of heaven to another is the same thing as saying the whole earth from horizon to horizon. But here's the beauty of that. He's saying that his messengers who are proclaiming the gospel are going to issue a loud trumpet call calling the elect from the four winds. Those who are destined for salvation, which is exactly what we see happen in the book of Acts. What is the trumpet call in reference to? It's a celebration of the year of Jubilee that happens every 50th year in Jerusalem. It says this in Leviticus 25, 8-9. Listen to this. Just listen to this. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout your land. What are his messengers to do in proclaiming the gospel? Blow the trumpet of their atonement. In the gospel message that they proclaim, they're proclaiming far and wide to all of God's people, your salvation has come from Babylon to America Berlin, London, China, North Korea, Australia, New Zealand, Italy. I'm running out of countries I know. Your salvation has come. Repent and believe in Christ that is risen from the dead. Go therefore into all nations, gathering his elect from the four winds. Go therefore into all nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the message of the gospel. In Christ alone, you have been set free. And with that, Jesus issues the final warning. Just like the trees give you signs that Jesus, that, that summer is here, so Jesus' words will be fulfilled and that will give you the promise. Again, he says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That's not what he's about to say in verse 36 and following, by the way. Things change after that. But for right now, he's saying, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Don't get fuzzy on that. He's being serious. But it's an answer to their question. When are these things going to happen? When is it going to take place? Be warned. Within this generation. Now, the reason that we go through all that, which is difficult, I recognize. Some of you may be tracking, some of you may not. Some of you may be disagreeing. Some of you may go, oh, makes sense. Some of you may be everywhere in between. But what does it mean that Christ has gained his crown of authority? What does it mean for you? Well, for one, to the unbelieving, it certainly means that it appears as though for right now nothing has changed. You remember Daniel? 
crowns are taken away from the beast, but they're allowed to live for a little while. The government that you now sit under, it's not your savior. It's another beast. It's a beast like the one that came before it, and it's a beast like ones that will come after it. Salvation does not belong to it. It's not its to grant. But right now, as an unbelieving person, that is your only hope. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to collapse like a dying star. And you're going to be left holding the bag. What Jesus proclaims here in his resurrection, and the gospel to you, is that the wrath of God against you has been satisfied in Christ. That His love for you is declared in Christ, taking your sins upon Himself. He's demonstrating His love for you. And He's calling you to have a seat at His table. Not as a sinner, but as a son and daughter. As a member of His family. Confess your sin to Him. Turn from it. Repent. Be saved. That is your only hope. It also says a lot to people that are in the midst of trial and suffering. That could be anything from health issues, financial issues, could be anything, marital issues. In the midst of trial and suffering, what does it mean that Jesus is king? I think he would say to anyone suffering, the same thing that he says to the church at Smyrna in Revelation 2, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. That sounds terrible. Listen to what he says. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you crown of life. He says the keys aren't in the hands of the beast. Keys to death and Hades are in my hands. Fear not. What if someone told you you're going to be put in jail? But I'm going to let you out with my keys. What would happen to the fear? Wouldn't it disappear? If they said, look, I am the Lord of heaven and earth. I am the top authority in the food chain. And as soon as you're put in jail, I'm going to let you out. Would your fear dissipate? What would it look like if I took away death as a possible outcome for your life? What would happen, literally? What would happen to you if I said, you'll never die? I took it away. It's off the table. I had the authority to do it. I took it away. Death will never happen to you. It's gone forever. And it was true. You, you really believed it. What would happen? How risky would you be with your life? Some of you would probably skydive without a parachute. Like a maniac. But wouldn't you be a little more risky? Would you be afraid? of things that are around you? But you see, Christ taking away permanent death from us, that is the foundation of His decree to us, His command to us, 
fear not. Why? Because the crown is on his head. I'm threatened. I might be persecuted. I might be tormented. But the one that I'm tormented by has a very short leash. And one day, I will be vindicated. One day, God will decide for His church and against the beast. And all governmental authorities and powers that exist parallel to Christ will be thrown into the lake of fire. And what will be but the people of God worshiping King, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I recognize that anything that has been said this morning is not the last word on interpretation of this chapter. It's not the final authority that there are differences of opinion even inside this room. But I pray, Lord, that the one thing we can all agree on is not only the imminent return of Christ, but His authority now and forever. I think we are all unified by that as your church has been for 2,000 years. And I pray, Lord, that because of that, you would lead us to be risky people for your kingdom. That it would cause us to step out on limbs for the gospel that we might not otherwise. That it would cause us to risk friendships that we might not otherwise risk. That it would cause us to risk our finances that we might otherwise seek to protect. That it would cause us maybe even to risk our own necks that above all we seek to save. And that if that day come for any of us here in this room where we face the sword at our throat, we might boldly proclaim Christ as King with our last dying breath. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.